Okay, we're back after a slight break. (laughs) Welcome to Hey Siri, a podcast about psychology, relationships, and most importantly, piping hot tea. Sit down, take a sip, and remember to subscribe as resident pop culture expert Zochi and struggling PhD student Siri take you through the what, why, and how of relationship research and what that means for your non-scientifically researched relationships. All of this research is coming out all the time, but academic literature can be intimidating and difficult to connect to real life. So let us do it for you. Siri will tell us all about what research is taking the psychology world by storm. On today's episode, she will tell us all about what happens to relationships after you become parents. And after hearing the research about how to navigate parenthood and romance, Zochi will guide Siri through the world of the most passionate and eccentric precinct in New York and the relationship between Jake Peralta and Amy Santiago. I'm, I'm so excited about this one. <laughs> and I'm excited about the article, although it's actually not from 2022, because we're actually we're still in the beginning of 2022. Well, it's March. <laughs> Yeah. You know, we'll give them some time. But it's, it's a really good one. So the article that we're going to be talking about and connecting to um, our pop culture segment is called Stress, Marital Relationship, and Quality of Life of Couples Across the Perinatal Period. It's by Fei-Wan Nye and Winsome Lam, and it was published in the Maternal and Child Health Journal in October of 2021, so still fairly recently. So, you know... As you can imagine, because this hasn't happened to you. So you do have to imagine it, and I do too. I'm picturing it now. (laughs) Becoming a parent can be stressful and difficult and tiring. (laughs) I think that's the biggest one. That seems the important. Yeah. And it's not just anecdotal, because research has consistently picked up on this, and stress that new parents have following the birth of a baby has been identified as a type of dyadic stress. So, you know, whenever I say dyadic, I'm referring to both partners in whatever, you know, a couple or a friendship. In this case, usually it's a couple. And so it's dyadic stress because it affects both parenting partners. And that's either because they're both experiencing the same stressful event, like a baby crying, (laughs) or the stress of one parent spills over and affects the other. So that's that specific effect. This is called the spillover effect, and it doesn't just happen to parents. It's just this idea that when you're in a couple and you're really close and tied to that other person and you live together, you know, that when they're stressed from maybe external events, their stress can spill over either unconsciously or consciously the other person and then beyond just affecting you know the other partner stress can affect the quality of life of the person experiencing it it can affect the quality of the family ties marital ties and psychosocial functioning in the individual and the relationship satisfaction of both parents and it's also been linked to postnatal depression in women and Also, beyond all of those other things, it can unfortunately impact the care and development of baby. So, oh my god, yeah, 
So those things might be tied, right? If the parents are really stressed, they may not take as good care of the baby. And then that probably can affect, you know, the development of the baby if they're not getting held as much or they're not getting talked to as much. That's you know, obviously, you know, in really severe cases, but stress is bad, y'all. <laughs> that sounds really bad. So previous research is mostly focused on the impact of stress on women in the transition to parenthood because women are, you know, a key integral part of that process, but both partners are affected by it. And I think part of the reason that we're seeing more research now coming out about this and looking at both partners is because dads, I don't, I think, I think that they're more involved in parenting than they have been previously in history. I think they're also, they feel more, you know, and then, and then the expectation that they're supposed to be more involved is also internal, right? So am I doing enough? You know, am I being involved enough? Am I helping out enough? In terms of, you know, things that are hard for parents to be, you know, or for dads to be involved in, right? So like feeding the baby, right? So that's not always something that a dad can do. So that can feel a little tough. I remember seeing this chart online and I'm going to have to look into this a little more to find out if it was like super accurate, but it was looking at dads changing diapers and different Mm -hmm. generations. So they asked like generation, like the boomer generation and then Gen X and then Gens and then millennials. Um, And I suppose Gen Z don't have any kids yet. Um, Oh, they do. And (laughs) oh shit. Oh, well, you know, well, we'll, we're just going to talk about them later then because it's a whole other situation. But um, it was crazy, honestly, the difference. It was, like, literally, like, a a ratio as bad as, like, 10%, whereas, like, millennial dads were, like, 90%. It was insane. No, and and that's insane. I guess it's, like, it's not insane, but it's disappointing to me that there will still be 10% of dads nowadays who have never changed their child's diaper. Yeah. (laughs) Because even if, you know, one parent is a stay-at-home parent, I just feel like you want to be involved in that way. You want to be capable of caring for your child. And, yeah, I just... just Also, like, weekends exist. Weekends and... Holidays, trips, vacations. Trips, exactly. <laughs> or, you know, the other parents just out for the day. I mean, it, it's, it's... Also, if you think about, you know, being a stay-at-home parent as a job, which it is, you got to think about the hours mm-hmm. worked as well because, you know, one of you gets to come home and be done with work and then the other one is kind of always at work. Yeah. So it makes sense for me when the other person gets home from work to take on partial duties Mm -hmm. at least (laughs) you know because otherwise i mean if that doesn't happen being a stay-at-home parent is literally a 24 7 job with absolutely and you're constantly vigilant and you're constantly anticipating someone else's needs crazy yeah (laughs) and then i mean going on from that right it lasts for years and, and there's actually really little research examining trends in stress and relationship functioning and quality of life related to the transition to parenthood across time, even though, I mean, it, <laughs> it goes on a really long time, right? Like, I mean, a year seems like a really short amount of time when you're like thinking about it, but 
when you're sleep deprived and you're responsible for this little baby 100% of the time every minute of the day and it's maybe your first time doing this, that just, <laughs> it lasts a long time. They're loud and sticky. They are. Two things that you never want to deal with when you're sleep deprived. Yeah. <laughs> like ever. And they're just, I mean, even babies, it's not that they're, I mean, they're as irrational as the rest of us, right? So they get upset for reasons that aren't just physical, and there's no way to talk to them like a person. <laughs> there's no reasoning with them. <laughs> so, I mean, based on this lack of knowledge and lack of understanding of how stress changes over time, how it may get better or worse over time, this unfamiliarity with how parenting stress affects dads. The authors conducted this study to look at, and I'm quoting here, the associations, changes over time, and gender differences in the stress, marital relationship, and quality of life of couples during the perinatal period. I'm going to have you guess what the perinatal period is, because I did not know before. Oh, well, it, I mean... I'm accidentally cheating because I, I, I do have oh, the notes shoot. for you this. Oh, shoot, you already looked you ahead? Did. Okay. Very, <laughs> very cleverly and kindly, you included the definition there. So I I'm going to take a right wild there. guess. I wouldn't have been able to know. Just going to say that. It's a weird term, I thought right? that maybe, I was a little worried, if I'm being honest, that I'd been spelling prenatal wrong this whole time. No. No. So prenatal is before you get pregnant. Natal mm. is when you're pregnant. And perinatal right. is after you're pregnant, but like it's a very specific time. So like prenatal as well as generally, I mean, it's before you get pregnant, but usually it's like, well, you're trying to get pregnant. So there's like a defined period of time. So perinatal right. is defined as basically, well, I guess, I think natal period does refer to pregnancy. I could be wrong, so our listeners can correct me, but the researchers define the perinatal period as basically like a few months before birth. So starting in the second trimester. So you're fully, fully pregnant to one year after birth interesting and I, I don't want to say I don't want to say like you know after they've given birth because they did look at both parents so just one year after the birth the grand birth <laughs> <laughs> so um it was actually part of a larger Chinese intervention study that was aimed at reducing postnatal depression so the entire sample was recruited from antenatal clinics in hospitals and split into an intervention and a control group, right? So evenly. So this is an experimental study, basically. And um, only the control, but so in this current study, only the control group participants. So the, the people that didn't receive any intervention, the people just like went through their pregnancy and parenting all on their own. <laughs> gotcha. So to be eligible for this study, either of the studies in the first place, participants had to be first-time parents. Um, they had to be over the age of 18, fluent in Chinese, both speaking and reading, and they couldn't have any psychiatric illness uh, because those are all things, right, that could affect uh, your stress as you become a parent. Right. They can affect, you know, how satisfied you are with your relationship, and they can really, really affect your health. So those were the criteria. So the researchers collected the data during the second or third trimester of pregnancy, and then again at six weeks, six months, and 12-month intervals following the birth of the baby. 
And they had, like I said, this is a dyadic study. So they had each parent in each couple complete the SRRS. These were all the Chinese versions, I should say. So a measure of stress, which asked participants to report on whether or not they had experienced a number of significant life events. So when we say significant life events, it's so funny because that's basically just code for like bad things. Oh no. Like they're significantly bad. Like none of these are like, did you get married recently? <laughs> these are like, did you experience a loss? Did you lose your job? Oh. And then they completed the DAS, measures marital satisfaction. And actually my lab uses the, the English version of the DAS. It's been around for a while. And they completed the SF12, which assesses just their physical and mental health and qualities of their physical and mental health that are significantly related to quality of life. So, you know, pretty sure, I mean, you know, when you're a new parent, you want to be completing, completing like hundreds of surveys that they kept it short, <laughs> which is smart. Um, smart and of in, them, yeah. Yeah. In total, they ended up getting 130 couples and 82% of them remained in the study for all four waves. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Their attrition rate was, was pretty good. The mean age for women was 31.4. For men, it was 33.1. And most of the mothers gave birth at full term by vaginal delivery to an infant who was five and a half pounds or above. So five and a half pounds was their cutoff for kind of like a healthy baby. You know, uh, we were both seven pounds. I think all three of us were seven pounds. So yeah, so probably, I can't remember. They gave like the average birth weight, but... Most of the babies were over five and a half. They were good size. I have a coworker who told me that she was 12 pounds. Wasn't Leo like 12 pounds? My brother-in-law. He was a big baby. Should I edit out Leo? <laughs> no. Leave him in. It's a good thing. He, he was won't hearty. be embarrassed about being a huge baby. He was a hearty baby. <laughs> That's insane. 12 pounds. Yeah, you know, it just like, I mean, it, you know, it's so weird how there's just this natural variation. But yeah, the, the babies were pretty healthy. One thing that I thought was interesting about this study, and I don't know. Well, I mean, okay, let me, let me ask you. Do you find anything about the sample characteristics interesting knowing the recruitment criteria? Because this was one thing really struck me when I looked at this right away. No. Oh, no. <laughs> no, it's not bad. I just wonder if it's just me and it's just like, I don't know. But... I'm not a detective, Siri. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you didn't go to oh, detective school? Okay. That was so funny. Okay. So the mean age of the parents really struck me. These are first-time parents. They were just recruited like just from hospitals. The only criteria was that they had to be over 18, and they ended up with a mean age of early 30s, which means that some of these parents were above their, you know, early 30s and into their 40s. And, you know, in the U.S., I think the average age of having your first baby for women is like 27. Oh, whoa, what? Okay, maybe, I don't know. I feel like 30 is a good age to start having babies. Our parents were like 32. Well, see, this is the thing, though. So the mean age for women was 31. At 35, once you're 35 or above, those pregnancies are called geriatric pregnancies. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. they're on, I mean, and it's, you know, I don't know exactly why. I just know that they are. And so these, like, you know, on average, these are women who are, 
having their first baby four years before that. So I just thought that was interesting. That is interesting. I do think that it's becoming more normal to have babies later, kind of. Well, and this is also in China, so I'm not as familiar, right, with like... Right, 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 right. With their childbearing practices. Clearly. And, oh, and both parents had to be, I mean, I feel like they had to be fluent in reading and writing Chinese, but I feel like that's a lot of the Chinese population. If you population live in China, <laughs> you probably I know, speak but like, you know, Chinese. They're, when they're thinking, like, I'm thinking there are probably portions of the U.S. that aren't fluent at reading and writing English. Very true. You know, so these are these are at least somewhat educated people, right? I mean. Who've at least gone through maybe elementary, middle you know what you know what they have in china i think it's a better age 30 than yeah say early to mid 20s um Mm -hmm. so i don't know what it is but i like it good for them yeah maybe they just you know maybe they plan better than we do good god Okay, so moving away from the sample, like I said, they'd had them take these kind of battery of measures, although it wasn't quite a battery because it was just three, when they were pregnant, later in the pregnancy, and then at six weeks, six months, and a year after the baby was born. And the results indicated that mom's and dad's stress levels peaked at six weeks after the birth, and then actually declined significantly afterwards. So... That makes sense. That does to me. make sense. Yeah, that feels like a good amount of time before something really gets to you. Yeah, exactly. But then the fact also that it it doesn't it isn't sustained there. Well, yeah, because you think about it, it does get easier. Yeah, as they you get, get into older. the routine, kind of know what you're doing. Yeah, and they they start sleeping more regularly, and that means that you sleep more regularly and have more time to yourself and with each other. Yeah. And so the increase in stress from pregnancy to six months postpartum, so after the birth, was significant for women, but not for men. So there was a women experienced this like dramatic increase in stress from pregnancy to six months postpartum that was, you know, significant. It's, it was significant. It was, it was really detrimental. But men didn't have, I mean, I, it, it, we wouldn't call it maybe an increase. They were stressed, but they didn't experience this like, you know, why, like upswing of stress from pregnancy. Yeah, that them. also makes sense to me because laboring to birth, in my personal opinion, and what it's been described to me as, and what I've seen of it from movies and TV shows, and, you know, health classes, it seems literally, and I know people are going to think I'm dramatic for saying this, it literally seems like a traumatic experience that's sort of, like, overshadowed. It's just made sort of better because you get a kid after. But, like, if you had to do that for, say, a tumor, that's trauma. That's disgusting. Yeah, and I no, feel like but, you need to heal for so much time. And like your body literally yeah. just like put itself back together. But Ew. what's interesting to me is like it so if we look at this right just like as a as a linear model right or a linear picture. Women were more stressed at 6 months postpartum than they were when they were pregnant. 
and men weren't. They had the same amount of stress. It was it was about the same. So I can totally see being more stressed, you know, around the time of the birth than you were in your second trimester. But then you are actually still more stressed than you were when you were pregnant at six months after you give birth. Honestly, maybe you're still like readjusting. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe your hormone levels get thrown off and it makes your stress worse. Cause like you go through such a shift. Yeah. And I think that's something we're, we're going to touch on too. And you're still, your body is still like tolls are being taken on your body still in terms of like if you're breastfeeding, like. Yeah. That can be an incredibly painful experience for a lot of people. Oh, we're going to talk in a about lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah, what moms yeah, go so through uniquely. I can definitely see or biological moms being yeah. a little bit more stressed if um, that's going on. Yeah, and I mean, okay, so these results were like, these results were actually really crazy to me, even, even knowing all those factors. So they also found that women's stress levels were significantly higher than men's at each of the postpartum time points, six weeks, six months, and 12 months. So every time they measured it, moms were more stressed than dads by like, a lot and i'll give you concrete examples in a minute so basically dads were generally less stressed their stress dad's stress levels rose a little bit between pregnancy and six months six weeks postpartum but then they declined rapidly across the six and 12 time points so like for dads they were like more stressed at six weeks postpartum than they were during pregnancy but it went back down by the six month time point for moms they were Mm -hmm. stressed at pregnancy more stressed at six weeks postpartum and more stressed (laughs) at six months. Oh no. And so just to give you an idea of what this difference looked like, the mean stress score for women at 12 months postpartum after they've had this little thing for a year was 203. And this was a big decline because when they were pregnant, their average stress score was 240. men's stress level during the pregnancy was 208 and they declined to 126 by 12 months postpartum so you've got moms reporting their stuff you don't even need to know the scale of this stress like scale right so a stress measure moms were reporting an average of 203 points on stress at 12 months postpartum dads are reporting an average of 126 points i Hmm. I think they need to take more night feedings. I know. Well, so I think that's, that's what I'm hearing. Maybe. Well, you're not. Okay. Well, well I can share some of my stress. Yeah. Well, so we'll go over this because this is really curious. And I really appreciate this study because, right, it's a Chinese sample. So they're going to have some cross-cultural deviation from the U.S. And some of it's really interesting. But a lot of it. So, you know, they asked them. What significant life events have you had recently? And then they looked at what the most common ones were. And actually, I think those, the, the, these events and, how, you know, the most common events are probably very similar to, they are, to what, you know, they are in the U.S. So the following life events were the most frequent. The top three, changes in daily life. So sleeping, eating, recreation, obviously. Changes related to work and financial state was another big one. And then trouble with in-laws. And this was especially apparent for women in the first few months after giving birth. Yep. And we'll get into yep. that <laughs> a little more because the trouble that they, I think, are having with their in-laws may be just a little different than we have in the U.S. But I think in the U.S. that's that's also a common issue. Yeah, I would think so. So 
Marital satisfaction dropped significantly from pregnancy onward for women and from pregnancy to six weeks and pregnancy to 12 months for men separately, right? So for men, their marital satisfaction didn't really change significantly from pregnancy to six months. It was about the same. So it dropped at six weeks, then it kind of went back up a little. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But there was this overall downward trajectory for both men and women in marital satisfaction, um, pregnancy to 12 months after the baby was born. And this was really interesting to me, but I think it makes a lot of sense. The level of mental health-related quality of life stayed stable across the entire time period for men. It didn't really change. But women experienced a significant decline in mental health-related quality of life from pregnancy to six weeks after the birth. And then this really big upswing at both the six and 12-month postpartum time points. Okay, that does make sense to me. Yeah. And I can, I mean, I can totally see that. I'm just thinking like you're, like you mentioned with the hormone changes and the night feedings Mm -hmm. if you're deciding to nurse and like... I mean, just... Just being in pain all the time. Right. And women are more likely to take maternity leave, which will be your quality of life isn't great while you're caring for an infant. (laughs) (laughs) And this is so funny to me. In terms of physical health-related quality of life, moms, the people that pushed these little babies out of them, experienced a significant increase at each time point following pregnancy. Hell yeah, ladies. Get it. And I'm guessing it's just because pregnancy is so uncomfortable that even like six weeks after birth, you kind of feel better. (laughs) This is like training on Everest. You are like, you're taking the ankle weights off to fight. Like, it's crazy, I'm sure. And also, can you imagine the confidence boost? Look what I did, world. That is so true. I created life. That is so true. I pushed this human out of me. Can you do that? Maybe if you're, you know, whatever. But Being done maybe, with it. But I did it. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it's all over. And you, you know, like, not having to give birth, you know, again, unless, I mean, once you get pregnant, right? Once you're like, I don't know. I just, <laughs> I imagine that, like, somewhere in the third trimester, you just come to this realization, like, oh, my God, I have to give birth. Like, there's no way out of it now. <laughs> like. Terrifying. <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> For dads, they experienced a significant decrease in physical health quality related quality of life at each time point following pregnancy. So literally the opposite of moms. Why? They were just like, this is getting worse and worse. <laughs> oh my God, why are you so tired? Yeah, and That's it could, funny. you know, could, the, the qual- uh, physical health related quality of life, those could be a lot of symptoms. Those could be my back hurts could be you know headaches and stuff like that but just the fact that they were decreasing significantly the entire year after their baby was born and moms had the opposite (laughs) so the the thing that I want to point out here though is moms did have lower scores on physical health related quality of life than dads during pregnancy obviously yeah and they also had lower scores than dads at six weeks and six months postpartum So moms actually started out lower on physical health-related quality of life and remained lower almost during the whole perinatal period as compared to dads, even though within groups, like within the group of women, 
they did have increases in their own physical health related quality of life. And I'm assuming that possibly by the 12 month postpartum, they actually outpaced dads. They, they outscored dads in physical health related quality of life. Okay. So, well, so that's interesting. Yeah. So that was kind of, uh, those are some big findings. I guess that the last findings that we might want to talk about are, you know, stress, was negatively associated with marital satisfaction, duh, and quality of life, also duh, throughout all of the perinatal period time points. So, I mean, as we knew, stress is bad for individual and couple well-being. What? Um, but there, <laughs> there was a positive association between marital satisfaction and quality of life at each wave of the study. So, you know, there seems to be this relationship where, you know, we don't know which direction it is. It could be bi-directional, where being happy in your marital relationship improves your quality of life. And this, you know, persisted, I assume they accounted for the effects of stress in the model. Moms and dads' scores on stress, marital satisfaction, and mental health-related quality of life showed weak to moderate correlations across time points. So, you know, in general, it appears that they're reporting similar stress levels and, you know, satisfaction levels, mental health, really quality of life levels, but not that similar. Okay. So they are, you know, they're more similar than two random people, but it's not like they're, you know, mind melding. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're not feeling the exact same thing at each time. But the only significant association between their physical health related quality of life was at one year following the birth. And this is because like we talked about, moms were so low on physical health and dads were so high that it was like they were opposite, right? Up until <laughs> about a year after the birth. There was no association between how they were feeling physically. So moral of the story, women experience more stress lower marital satisfaction and poorer quality of life than men during the perinatal period. But for both parents, stress peaks at six weeks and then steadily declines after this point. So it does seem like you just need to get past that hump and things will get better. And, you know, just be prepared for significant changes in daily life, work, family relationships, and for an increase in couple conflict. It just, that's just one thing that happens. Also, this is just like me, I guess, extrapolating. Try to make sure that your relationship is solid before having the baby because <laughs> it is not going to be solid for a while after. Yeah, <laughs> well, that makes sense. And then here's where the cultural stuff comes in. It's just a little tiny note, right? Because it was, it was written, you know, by Chinese authors maybe not just for a Chinese sample, but with this focus. So the authors did note that some of these findings may be influenced by cultural practices. So over half of the moms in the sample participated in the cultural practice doing the month where they stayed home for four weeks following the birth and followed specific dietary and behavioral guidelines. So these included, you know, avoiding cold drinks, not bathing. And during this time, they were basically always in the presence of a female relative like mom or mom-in-law. So the idea behind this, right, is that they're recuperating and someone needs to be with there to help them to help them. But obviously being with anyone all the time can be stressful. 
especially when you're already with your baby all the time. So it's like, oh my God, I can just like, I'm someone who really needs alone time. So the idea of never being alone is just like, oh my God. That would be a rough one. So some, yeah. So some of mom's higher stress levels as compared to dad could have been affected by this. And maybe if you had moms where they didn't necessarily have to follow these behavioral or dietary guidelines as strictly, or they were getting some alone time, or they, and when they say stayed home for four weeks, I think that's pretty, like, it's not an exaggeration. I think they probably did not leave the house that much. Oh my goodness. That is really rough. (laughs) Because it's all about them recovering, right? right? And people taking care of them. But that in itself can be stressful. So that's it. And I would like to participate in doing the month. I don't want to have the baby. I just want to have that. That sounds great. I'm willing to stay home and have someone take care of me. Yeah, where do I sign up for that? (laughs) But yeah, I I really appreciated this study and I, I appreciated the information that it had that was really interesting it makes a lot of it made sense to me yes intuitively it really does make sense but you know like our our mom always says this but like it's not uh it's not common sense until it's tested (laughs) (laughs) oh boy wait so what's our bring us to our pop culture can i'm so excited all right and i do i will say before we start well maybe this is a spoiler i'll wait till we get to the end Alrighty, the pop culture connect (laughs) So Brooklyn Nine-Nine is an American police procedural comedy that first aired on Fox in September of 2013 and later moved to NBC in 2018 for its last three seasons. It was canceled for, literally, this is not a joke, one day. Oh, really? It got canceled on some May something, and then it was picked up the next day. <laughs> That's by hilarious. NBC. And in my opinion, it was a mistake. Oh. Wait, so it Let was... Let it die. It should have died then. Wait, what wait, What season was it on when it was canceled, quote-unquote? So it was the last three seasons, so they were just ending season four. Okay. That's a good run. Four seasons. And then you came run. back for five, six, seven. Okay. It would have ended on, like, the worst cliffhanger of any TV series ever, oh I think. God, I don't but... We'll get to it. We'll get to it because it was crazy. But I honestly think that the last three seasons were just, maybe if they had just changed some things and ended it in five, it would have been like one of the best series ever. Mm. I'm sad. It was created by Dan Gore and Michael Shure. Sure? Sure? Sure. I just said Gore, so it messed me up there. <laughs> the series revolves around coworkers in New York's 99th precinct in Brooklyn. We follow the lives and relationships of detectives Amy Santiago, Charles Boyle, Jake Peralta, and Rosa Diaz, Sergeant Terry Jeffords, and Captain Raymond Holt. The series has been nominated for 11 Emmy Awards, consisting of four nominations for Primetime Emmy Awards and seven for Creative Arts Emmy Awards. Additionally, the show has been nominated for 17 Choice Awards, six Satellite Awards, eight NAACP Image Awards, and two Golden Globes. That's a lot of awards very loved oh yeah as of 2021 brooklyn 99 has won 15 awards out of a total of 81 nominations so even if they didn't win them all like they got a lot of love yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) the first season won the golden globe award for best television series musical or comedy and on the same night andy samberg who plays jake won the golden globe award for best actor television series musical or comedy andre braffer 
which I hope that's how you pronounce his last name. That seems right. Who plays Captain Holt. Yeah, right, yeah. you know. Uh, he's been nominated four times for the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series and has twice won the Critics' Choice Television Award for Best Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series. In addition, uh, Stephanie Beatrice, who plays Rosa, has received six award nominations, winning an Imogen Award for Best Supporting Actress Television and... Oh, wait. Best Supporting Actress Television. <laughs> and two Gracie Awards for Outstanding Actress in a Supporting Role, Comedy or Musical. Furthermore... Stunt performer Norman Howell won the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Stunt Coordination for a comedy series or variety program. That makes sense. And the series also... Yeah, they had some they amazing had stunts. stunts on there. Especially, like, they get pretty wild on this series. I mean, it is a comedy and a sitcom, like, goofy, first of all, but, like... And they rely a lot on physical humor. It's a cop show. Too. Yeah, that too. <laughs> the ser- And the, the heists. Yeah. Those got insane. The series also won a GLAAD Media Award for Outstanding Comedy Series. So, let's get into it. Who is Amy Santiago? Amy is a driven, organized, and intelligent detective with maybe more than a few self-esteem issues. She begins the series as a detective, is later promoted to sergeant, and finishes the series as chief of department. Barely. I looked at the job <laughs> description. Barely. Well, I don't know what that is, too. So I wanted to know what that was, because I was like, it sounds cool. Yeah. I don't know what that is. So I looked at the job description, and according to ncpea.org, which I hope is reliable, it ends in .org, so I <laughs> trust it a little bit implicitly, which is bad, because you can just buy a .org. But anyway, they plan, direct, manage, and oversee the activities and operations of the police department, including law enforcement, crime prevention, and crime suppression programs, coordinates assigned activities with other departments and outside agencies, and provides highly responsible and complex administrative support to the city manager. She's going to be amazing at that. <laughs> That's literally like, perfect. It is. It's perfect. I love that for her. And it's like, it lives up so truly to what she is as a character. Yeah, that was a really good choice on the writer's part. It's amazing. And I will say the way that they wrapped up a lot of the character development, I do enjoy. Yes. Even though they should have ended the series pretty seasons earlier than they did anyway <laughs> she consistently shows that she is obsessed with cleanliness and order and has a deep-rooted obligation to rules of all kinds even occasionally seeming to be physically incapable of breaking any perceived rules amy also loves and deeply respects her senior officers particularly revering captain holt throughout the series amy sometimes dramatically constantly seeks mentorship mentorship and validation from those around her especially holt and goes above and beyond to demonstrate her abilities and dedication which might stem from her issues with her large competitive and high achieving family we'll learn more about that later amy also suffers from intense anxiety and we find out she smokes in secret to cope with her stress she is very loyal and caring but has some contentious moments with all of her fellow detectives and her sergeant terry and is a particularly volatile relationship with the precinct's administrator gina who has self-described herself as being quote name checked in her kindergarten teacher's suicide note <laughs> gina was yeah <laughs> i just wanted to include that about gina i really I feel like it really that. just lays out who she is it's as a character very like i think that's all you need to Accurate. know about her she is highly competitive a skilled detective and an assertive leader and I love her. Who is Jake Peralta? Jake is a confident, whimsical, and not so occasionally immature detective. He knew he wanted to be a cop ever since his first viewing of his favorite movie, Die Hard, and had been an active officer for at least eight years before the show began. I want to say something real quick. As someone whose favorite movie is also Die Hard, 
and was before Brooklyn Nine-Nine was even a concept of a show. I would like to say, Jake Peralta ruined loving Die Hard. Why? Because, like, it was a kind of a thing to love Die Hard before Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which was already, like, ugh, I wish so many people didn't love the movie Die Hard, because <laughs> now it's embarrassing. <laughs> but Jake Peralta, I blame him for all of a sudden this twist of people making Die Hard, like, their personality. Mm. And also, now, like, he made having, he made, like, my favorite movie being Die Hard, like, cringy. Because it's like, no, it's not because of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> and also because, like, I'm in my 20s, and the movie came out in the 80s. And so already people were like, do you really like Die Hard? Or is that just a thing you say? And it's like, no. I actually adore Die Hard. <laughs> I watch Die Hard an embarrassing amount. <laughs> it's a very comfort movie for well, me. Well, now, because everyone else is doing it, it's not an embarrassing amount anymore. It's just a large amount. That's true. Man, I actually recently um, got this... My partner got me this book about the making of Die Hard, and it's, like, the coolest gift I've ever received in my entire life because it includes, like, literal blueprints. Oh, my God. And, like, bits of the script and, like, concept photos and storyboards. Like, oh, my God. It is actually an incredible movie. It's, like, so well written. It was so well executed. Oh, my God. It's actually a great movie. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> He attended the police academy at the same time as his future co-worker, Rosa Diaz. Um, we'll meet her later. And because of his high arrest records, his flaunting of professionalism and the rules were indulged by his captain and co-workers. And after his original captain, McGintley, retired, his lackadaisical approach to policing caused friction between him and his new captain, Holt. And I have here something that I really wanted to talk to you about. It's an interesting fact about his upbringing and background, and it is specified on brooklyn 99 wiki so like you know the source mm -hmm. the show bible that yes, jake, official show yes, bible brooklyn 99 wiki the official show bible says that jake is ashkenazi and sephardic and was raised by his mom in an ashkenazi and sephardic household after his dad repeatedly cheated and walked out on their family when jake was young that makes sense to me really yeah they never talk about him being Jewish at all. They, like, literally never mention it. I I feel like maybe it was mentioned, like, briefly in the background, like, once. But he doesn't celebrate any holidays. Not a lot of Jews don't. Any holidays? I don't remember. I mean, I celebrated Hanukkah last year, but... That's a holiday. I don't know. A lot of people aren't in touch with their Jewish roots. But then why does it specify that he was raised in an Ashkenazi and Sephardic household? That's not just mm. his roots, that's his childhood. Yeah, but a lot of parents are more religious than their children, especially, I think, in Jewish families. Like, that's something I'm seeing a lot with like people that I know. That would come up. Yeah. It was, it's, that's, it was a weird choice, maybe, to not, like... Because we go to his mom's house, they don't have a mezuzah on the door, 
there's no like there's no Haggadahs yeah, in the like, house or anything. I, I think I think it was weird that they didn't mention it. I don't think it's weird that she wasn't like Orthodox. It's not Orthodox to have a Haggadah or a mezuzah on the door. We always had a mezuzah on I the think door. Having a mezuzah on the door is not common among people that aren't. We orthodox. always had a mezuzah on the door. We lived in an orthodox neighborhood. When we moved orthodox into our current neighborhood. house, there was already a mezuzah on our door. <laughs> yeah, but I think, I don't know. I just, I mean, as someone living in Texas right now, in the Judas of Texas, like, okay. it's very different We're than not talking about southern Jews. We're talking about <laughs> east coast Jews. You know those guys are more serious than any other Jews on the planet. Yeah, I might that's cut right. that out. I might, the, I might. In the setting. I might cut that out. <laughs> in the setting, it's weird. Actually, this I'm going to cut out, but I still want to say it to you. East Coast Jews are more serious, and they think that they're more serious and more Jewish than Israeli Jews. Yeah, they, no, I completely agree with that. They are really serious. <laughs> they are. Like, they're, they're, they're like our version of Amish people. They're, like, they're really committed. <laughs> they committed to this bit. Like, none of us can talk him out of it. But no, I just thought that was interesting because it's like, is he? Yeah, it's interesting that, like, I wonder who put it on the wiki. That's what I'm curious about. Like, is it real or is this just something that, like, someone wanted? Yeah, and why both Ashkenazi and Sephardic specifically? Okay, that's weird to me, too, because you can, I would say probably, like, oh, he's both Ashkenazi and Sephardic. But I don't think he would say, like, he was raised in an Ashkenazi and Sephardic household. Like, that phrasing seems weird to me yeah and it's just weird that they didn't just say jewish anyway that was just interesting to me because i just did not pick that up about his character because they literally never ever say anything about it ever or represent it in any way whatsoever but okay i feel like i i feel like there was definitely something maybe i latched on to it because i don't know maybe i'm wrong maybe it never maybe it was never mentioned it was just andy samberg is jewish maybe that's what i'm thinking so he has a vibe about him well i knew he was jewish and maybe that's what i'm thinking of and peralta's not a jewish last name well they probably just made him jewish because the actor's jewish and decided not to put any other thought into it but i don't think hang on let me find out if andy samberg is sephardic because i don't think he is i think he's ashki that is not a term (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is. is not something that we say. It, it sounds really weird. I've never heard it before. Okay, he's part Italian. You've never heard that before? I've actually heard that a lot. I knew he was a... He looks Italian. He was raised in a Jewish family, considers himself not particularly religious. I'm reading from his Wikipedia bio. Oh my god, his first name is David. At LOL. At age five, he told his parents he wanted to change his name to Andy. That's really interesting. Oh, so he had like a... See, it just says Jewish. Even even Wikipedia isn't as specific as Brooklyn Nine-Nine Wiki. Yeah, but who can edit the Brooklyn Nine-Nine Wiki? Anyone, right? I don't know, actually. I've never tried. <laughs> He's a third cousin of U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin. That's interesting. I'm literally, I literally googled like Andy Samberg Jewish, and there's nothing about whether he's Ashkenazi or Sephardic. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. They just say Jewish. Curious. Why does this why does this article introduce him as Jewish Saturday Night Live alum actor Andy Sandberg? Oh, I don't like that. Had an awkward encounter with a fan recently while filming a comedic skit. What is that? Why have would to they say he's Jewish? Jewish? Oh god. That's so that weird. Is so funny. He was even on an episode of Finding Your Roots, and they don't specify yeah. 
if the Jewish is Sephardic or Ashkenazi? I think because on the show they were focusing on his Italian family because he that's the side that he didn't know about. Right. Because he knew about his Jewish ancestry. Yeah, because it comes up when you're Jewish. So that's why it's that so weird it that it's never on the, the show. D- it comes up. But on the on the DNA test, it tells you whether you're Ashkenazi or Sephardic. Also, you're telling like, me that his mom, Jew. nor Charles, insisted that they smash a glass at their wedding, like, at the very least? Even our, and I it's might weird. cut this, but I don't know if she listens to the podcast. Um, hi. Our cousin, like, did not have a Jewish wedding, and they still smashed a glass. Yeah. That's oh, weird. It's weird. It is a weird point. Anyway, I'm going to have to cut a lot of that because people don't understand Jewish banter <laughs> and it just sounds offensive. <laughs> what kind of Jew is he? <laughs> Later in the series, he finds out he has many half-siblings as a result of his father's affairs. And we meet one of his half-sisters, Kate, who, by the way, is only seen one time and does not attend their wedding. Right? She just went in and out. Jake attended elementary school with Gina and got her her job at the precinct. Although Jake is rather juvenile, he is witty, charming, and takes his job very seriously despite his objections to regulations like dress codes. How did they get together? It's still a mystery. (laughs) I don't know. Jake and Amy start the series as a professional and occasionally personal rivals. We see them partake in banter, petty squabbling, and making bets on who can get the most arrests. In season 1, episode 13, The Bet, a bet forms around which one can bring in the most felony arrests in a night, and the stakes get high when the whole precinct gets involved. They decide that if Amy wins, she gets Jake's car. And if Jake wins, Amy has to go on a date with him. A date that he promises will be the worst she's ever been on. Forest dates are the best dates. You guys won't believe me when I tell you, if you've never seen Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and I was like really trying to convince you that the writing was actually very, very good, and then you're like, all right, tell me about an episode. And I'm like, all right, the bet. Hear me out. They uh, they do the most common trope in rom-coms. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> it's good, I swear. Amy takes the lead early on, and until the very last minute, it seems as though Jake's car is lost. But Jake ends up winning with 30 buzzer beaters who were soliciting. Which, okay, I went to look on on this, because in the scene... Did you not know what soliciting was? No, I know what soliciting is, but I thought, is that a felony? So I watched the scene, and Amy says something interesting, which really led me down this rabbit hole of New York penal law. Get ready. (laughs) He brings in 30 Johns who were soliciting, yeah? Right. Amy says, that's not a felony. Jake says, it is if it's your second offense, which is true for 10 of them. What he says, which is true for 10 of the Johns, and three of their names are actually John, which is very funny. (laughs) But I looked it up because I was like, what? So, according to New York Penal Law 100.10, I don't know how I'm supposed to say that, 100.10, is defined as follows. This crime is committed when there is intent that another person engages in conduct constituting a Class A felony. He solicits, requests, commands, importunes, or otherwise attempts to cause other person to engage in such conduct and is classified as an E felony. So it seems that soliciting is indeed a felony in New York. So if you get caught soliciting, then it's a Class E felony if you 
were engaging in conduct, if you were, if you intended to solicit sex for money, and it's a it's a class A. So if you if you intended to do that, it's a class E felony. If you actually solicited sex for money, it's a class A felony. Is that what I'm getting? So they're both felonies, but it's just depending on degree of felony. I think. But either way, Amy was wrong. That is a felony in New York. <laughs> I think it's a different degree of felony, and it's based on whether you intended to do it, but like you were caught in a sting or whether you actually did it and then you were caught in the motel room after, right? Right, so maybe they've specified early on off camera that it was only class A felonies allowed. <laughs> All right. You would think. <laughs> I, that's funny because I feel like that's something that's like, right, like you just looked it up, like these penal codes are online. Yeah, it's very easy to find. And I don't know why they didn't do that. I learned something today. <laughs> Jake gets on one knee with a fake ring and invites Amy on the worst date ever, and she must accept. The next night, Jake picks up Amy in his rescued car in a garish tuxedo and Amy in a blue sparkly sequined bar mitzvah dress with a poofy skirt and bow that Jake picked out for her. Jake sets the rules for the night, which are as follows. The date ends at midnight. He decides what she wears, what she eats, and where they go. No matter what happens, she can't fall in love with him. I swear the writing's good. Like, it's actually really good and really, like, intricate. <laughs> well, that's the thing is they take all it's these thoughtful. tropes and they, like, yeah, play on them, exactly. Right? Wait till we get to our Glee episode. <laughs> Only partway through their date, they get a call from Captain Hole telling them they have to cover a stakeout, and they end up hanging out and talking while doing surveillance on a rooftop. Despite their rivalry, they hit it off and have a great time with each other. So when G Jake gets another call from Holt telling him they have the option to be relieved for the night, Jake turns him down so they can keep spending time together. He doesn't tell Amy about the relief team, but she finds out the next morning when Holt tells her he was happy they decided to stake out together, and surprised, Jake turned down leaving. Ho ho ho, I wonder if that means something. <laughs> nah. Two episodes later, in The Vulture, Amy and Jake crack a particularly difficult case on a nearly impossible time crunch, all while Jake is upset with Amy for taking an interview that would transfer her from their shared precinct. She asks him why he even cares, and he tells her he likes working with her and would be sad to see her go. After they solve the case, Jake, take a f Jake takes a photo of them together in celebration, and we find out he framed it and keeps it on his desk. Okay, that's adorable. I think that's the cutest thing ever. And also, like, we know Jake is a character. The fact that he went through the trouble of, like, going to a photo place, picking out a frame that's the right size, printing out the photo, putting it in the frame. That's so sweet. Yeah. I've framed photos before. It's actually kind of a slog. <laughs> it's so annoying. Yeah. <laughs> it's like something that you don't realize is so annoying until you're an adult and you have to like Yes, that is something also like I feel like a child wouldn't truly appreciate the trouble of framing a photo of someone. Like, yeah. I mean, well, like a smaller photo isn't too bad but like once you get up to like mid-size it's rough and even smaller photos finding the right size. anyway I it's adorable and i love that he did that <laughs> throughout the rest of season one we see amy and jake get closer as co-workers and friends we see them confide in each other about both work and their personal lives and seek advice from each other like when jake is about to lose his apartment or when amy is struggling with her self-evaluation from holt Towards the end of season one in the episode Tactical Village, Jake gives Amy dating advice but quickly gets flustered when he finds out that Amy's ex-boyfriend, Teddy, is at their tactical training. Amy reaches out to him a few times about his change in demeanor, and though he tries to hide his discomfort around Teddy, it starts getting to him more and more throughout the episode. 
Jake ends up winning a coveted award for his performance in their training and invites all his coworkers to come out and celebrate with him, but his excitement is quickly dampened when Amy says she'll have to meet up another time because she's going out with Teddy that night. So sad. At the bar, Jake complains to his friend Charles about Teddy, and Charles tells him that if he wants to date Amy, he actually has to ask her out. Jake agrees. He can't ask her out. She's dating someone she else. She just went on one <laughs> date with him. On, with Teddy? Yeah. Oh, I thought she was, I thought it was just like she was already dating him. No, okay, no, no. That makes sense. it's her ex-boyfriend. Oh, uh, okay, okay, okay. Jake agrees, and the next time he and Amy are chatting, he asks about her plans, but decides not to ask her out after she tells him she and Teddy have plans to go out again. So sad. Just clearly state your intentions, Jake, okay? Clear communication. <laughs> no, if unclear communication is no communication, all right, buddy? Yeah, that's fair. I think it was Brene Brown who said clear is kind yeah although sometimes it's kind sometimes it's kind not to put your own feelings on someone else that's true that's true oh my god i just realized how much we just started season one and we're an hour into the podcast oh my god this is gonna be a really long podcast guys i'm sorry okay wait i have a proposal what's up because i we are halfway through right now and we're an hour in and my proposal this is also coming because i've had like seven hours sleep in the last two minutes no is that we actually split this episode into two and have a part one and part two are you sure because we could always just pause recording now and then come back sometime tomorrow like before tipsy tuesday or something no i kind of like the idea of actually having a, a part one and part two because that means we can spend a whole hour on the second half too i do like that because i have a lot to say about this show where do you think do you think end of season one would be a good time to start start episode two yeah yeah all right I so let's finish out perfect because we get to know their personalities and then we get into them as coworkers and friends and if i have a whole hour I have so much to comment on with regards to the relationship if that's actually like, perfect because season one not, yeah. lets off on a really interesting note for Jake and Amy. Okay. Yeah. Is okay. that okay? Yes, that sounds perfect. I love that because I have so okay. much to say. Because I was like trying not to say some things because I was like, oh my god, like I can't talk too much. This is going to be like three hours. No, for real. <laughs> and I also have so much to say about the other relationships in the show. And I think that is one thing. This is why it's striking me that it it is actually such good writing. It's because they're so... It's, this is like... We've covered shows way longer than this show. Mm-hmm. for That have three to four more seasons than this show has. And yeah. we did not have as much to say. Although we tend to cover the, like, little niche, like, the more niche shows that, like, get canceled after, like, only a couple what? of What? No, we did Friends and The Office and Parks and Rec. You know, we did Friends and we did Office. Parks and Rec, I feel like that's kind of a niche show, like, uh, like to be honest. No, absolutely not. It went for ten seasons. Everyone's seen Parks and Rec. Yeah, I guess. But, you know, everyone's seen Brooklyn Nine-Nine, too. They didn't make it their personalities like The Office. The Office, I know, is really popular. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I feel like everyone was watching it. And then at oh, the yeah, exact same time, everyone no one was watching 100%. it. 100%. Oh, I'm going to look up the ratings. Okay, wait, when should I look up the ratings? Um, NBC's second season, so season seven. No, no, sorry, season six. 
Okay, they're gonna be so low. Wait, no, I need a comparison. So let me go to the Wikipedia because I wanna see actually, I'm curious about how much they dropped too. So hang on. And we did Mar we did Modern Family. Yeah, Modern Family was so these are popular. huge shows. We did Scrubs, which I agree was a sleeper hit, but it was a hit nonetheless. It yeah, I think actually Scrubs was probably the least popular of all the shows we watched. Until we do happy endings, which makes me so sad. It will, I will actually cry. Well, Scrubs had also that weird second half of the show thing. I hated that. It was, Yeah, the, they had a season of med Okay, school. so <laughs> this is interesting. Average viewers for Brooklyn Nine-Nine season one, 4.8 million. Season two, 4.87 million. Season three, 3.98 million down 0.8 million mm -hmm. four 2.87 million oh boy. five 2.71 million and and that's where they then, got canceled yeah i guess because people were sad about it being canceled it went up to 3.11 on season six and then back well, down to remember, its worst it was... viewership ever 2.69 for the last season called it called yeah. it but also i want to say People got hyped as hell because of that one-day cancellation. That was the best PR they ever could have yeah, gotten. It was really good publicity. Oh, you know what's curious? Did they have eight seasons? Oh, no. There's a season eight on Wikipedia, but there's no viewership number, and I feel like that's maybe because it was exclusively on Hulu. Oh, boy. Is that what it was? Did we cover an episode where... Hang on. This is so interesting to me. Has there been a show? Was it Community who did a season or like a, a little a small series? We're going to do Community this season, right? We weren't. Or can we? Because we have one episode left, right? Um, Let me find out. Can we do On Again, Off Again with Community? Hang on. Let me. There are eight seasons. The last one is only nine episodes. Okay. I wonder if that one went straight to Hulu. I think it did. But anyway, let's close I, out I Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Anyway, Jake decided not to ask her out after she tells him that she and Teddy have plans to go out again. Jake clearly has issues with Amy and Teddy dating, and as their relationship gets more serious, he starts acting out more and has trouble hiding his emotions. He accepts an undercover assignment that will effectively take him out of his normal life completely for six months, and the night before he leaves, he tells Amy that if the situation was different and if she weren't with Teddy and he wasn't going away for six months, he'd like the two of them to be in a romantic relationship, and leaves before she has a chance to respond. And that is how season one ends. They always do that. Mm -hmm. They always just leave. They're like, okay, bye. Honestly, if I was Amy, though, I'd be like, excuse me, bitch, turn around. You want me to talk to your back? <laughs> Why do I feel like this has happened in another one of the TV shows, though? Oh, it did, in the, the office. Telling... Uh, that's what it was. Okay, This scene, sense. like, in a parking lot, too. Yeah. This exact and, and scene actually, happened. And actually, kind of an equally... It's, it's funny because, like, I was going to say equally dysfunctional couple, but I don't know if that is actually what I want to say. <laughs> I kind of feel like it's more like equally problematic but in a different way because i feel like jake and amy they actually have a fairly functional relationship yeah which i you know we'll get into but like they don't have any chemistry no and then on the office oh god i can't remember their name jim and pam Shoot. jim and pam they had like a really good chemistry and relationship on the surface but as we discussed it was like really actually dysfunctional 
when you really get into it. I don't think Jim and Pam stayed together after The Office ended, and I didn't like their relationship for them as a couple. I do think Jake and Amy could probably stay together after the series ended, even though I don't like their relationship or them as a couple. I feel like they probably did stay together because, okay, so I'm sure you're going to like, you're going to contradict me because I know that I'm just like not remembering stuff that I didn't want to remember, <laughs> but I don't remember them having any like, you know, fights like Jim and Pam did where they showed contemptuous behavior towards each other or they were openly punitive or dismissive no and i don't think feelings i don't think that happens in brooklyn 99 and truly honestly we see them go through some things as a couple that are really intense and i think jake reacts in the exact right way and we'll talk about that Mm -hmm. later i think he's an amazingly supportive partner i love them both as people like i love amy and how well she's supported jake through his childhood trauma that he starts processing during the series it's mm-hmm. all fantastic. At the same time, Jake should have married Sophia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they would have been really... That's the thing. Is like, I guess I just keep coming back to this idea of, like, and I really think that this is important. Like, you could probably find a study, which I probably should, like, this idea that if you don't have chemistry, if you don't have a spark, yeah. even if you're the most functional people on Earth, yeah. um, and you behave in the right way, and you react in the right way, it's like it's not gonna you're gonna be best friends you're gonna be really good you know close you know chosen family but it's you know it's and not the same as sustaining a marriage and that's one of the things i mean that... i guess a lot of marriages right some marriage not a lot some marriages they do just say i just i'm fine with just being your close friend and that's fine yeah and it's it is interesting because i don't know it's just I, I understand why they ended up together from a TV show standpoint. Of course they did. Yeah. They always were going to. That was never not an option. Mm-hmm. Jake and Amy were going to be together. If I had my way, <laughs> Jake and Sophia would have ended up together and they would yeah. have had this amazing marriage that we would be able to see from Jake and like maybe even like interacting with Terry as married couples. Like that would be very mm-hmm. interesting to me. And... And this is something I was talking about earlier, not even connected to this podcast. It's just something I really, really wanted to happen. And then I, I got this glimmer of hope that it would, and it was taken away from me so tragically. I wanted Amy so, so badly to end up with Rosa. I can totally see that. Yeah. Their dynamic, they have incredible chemistry. They work yeah. so well off of each other, comedically, romantically. They are amazing together. And not only that, I thought it would be a much more interesting dynamic. I was literally than... about to say their interactions are more interesting. Yes. Their, and they, yeah, they play off each other so dynamic. well. And, yeah. like, everyone wanted Gina and Rosa. And I was like, no, you people are no, stupid. That would you not don't work. understand these characters. No hear me out amy wears her heart on her sleeve she's okay with crying and being emotional she's very vulnerable and finds power in her vulnerability rosa cannot express feelings at all whatsoever they don't even know where she lives they don't know her real name all these things about her you know and that is such a more interesting dynamic than opposites attract to me because they are compatible they are they share a lot of similarities and they're very like 
they work together they're, well as they're people. They're complementary rather yeah. than similar. But which also, we've talked that would about be, before is the most yeah. important part. It would be so much more interesting seeing Amy like stressed out because she can't figure out how Rose is feeling about them and like you that's, know that's the thing though right amy and rosa are complementary you know jake and sophia were similar but jake and amy are neither complementary nor similar yeah and with jake and sophia you had that super fun dynamic that they put in there where it's like a rivalry like cops and lawyers are like the sharks and the jets mm-hmm. like that was so fun what a fun and it's a trope that they love to fall on this entire show. So I didn't understand why those couples didn't end up together. And it made me so upset. Yeah. Because it just makes sense. Yeah. Because we do see Rosa with a wild oddball who's just erratic and also wears his heart on his sleeve and also functions too quickly for anyone else to keep up with him. And we had a great time with them. And I'm like, yes, but he was too volatile for them to remain in a stable relationship, you know who's not? Amy. But she possesses those same core qualities. I agree. We missed out. So anyway, we're going to leave you on a cliffhanger here with Amy in this sad little parking lot and Jake about to go undercover for the mafia. Well, I mean, with the, in the mafia? With the mafia? Not for the mafia. Well, you know what I mean. For the Going undercover for the mafia, I think it's, it's a very different thing. Con. <laughs> and we're going to come back and fully discuss the rest of this show in episode part two, because we just have so much to say. Yeah, it's going to be an excruciating detail. Just wait until we get to the rest of the relationships. You don't even want me to talk about <laughs> Kevin. We don't talk about Kevin. Oh, God. No, wait, what's that movie called? There's something wrong with Kevin. There's something about Kevin. There's something about Kevin. <laughs> there we go. There's going to be something about Kevin in our next episode. Is that what we're going to title the next episode? There's something about Kevin. There's something about Kevin. <laughs> yes, but we're only we're we are going to focus mainly on Jake and Amy, but that will definitely. Yeah. We should do a bonus episode just about Captain Holt and Kevin and oh entitle God, that bonus yes. episode There's something about Kevin. I have so much to talk about because yeah, I just have so much to Should talk we about. Literally, with that? dead ass. Just do three episodes on. The thing is, they explore these like intimate relationships so much that it's like there's so much material. Let's do three episodes on Brooklyn Nine Nine. Let's do part one, part two, and then there's something about Kevin. I like it. And then you know what? We'll do Brad and Jane, and then <laughs> and that closes out our season. Oh my god! You literally just spoiled the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'll cut it. I'll cut it. It was so sudden. There was not even any, like, intro. I'll bleep it out, but I'll make the, the bleep sound like this. Oh, I, lo- I like it. I, lo- I'm, I like that. Excellent. <laughs> so our series finale, season finale, not series finale, season finale is still in mystery. Oh, God, series finale. <laughs> no, because our season three is going to um, be so just quit sick. on air? <laughs> our season three, I don't want to alarm listeners, is going to be thebomb.com. Oh, I have another, I have another, like, one for us for, like, I won't say anything. Also, I just forgot it, so I have to remember it, but I just know that I had one. Literally, we were going to, like, brush on that for a minute to talk about Pete Davidson and Kim Kardashian. We literally just don't have the time. We have to say so much about Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> okay, wait, then introduce, introduce, remem- remember to introduce, um... Uh, my close personal friend, uh, Pete, at the beginning of the next episode. Yes. Will do. I'm sure he'll be happy to hear from you. You kind of been ghosting him a Will little bit. Be. You know he's delicate. 
Not as delicate as Kanye West, apparently. Holy shit. You know that's going to be an episode. We have to. What are we, we going to do? Stalking and harassment? <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to go to pop culture because I just feel like there's so many things going on there. That's why I think, yeah, so we should do our three-episode Brooklyn Nine-Nine arc, and then we close it out with the last two. Excellent. Like and the last two yeah, are bangers, like to be yeah, honest. Yeah, the last two are going to be good. It's one of really my favorite series for... of all time, and then my actual favorite series of all time. <laughs> I know. I'm so excited for the last one. I've I've been very immersed in the show. So much. I'm going to rewatch it now. Ha, I have an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'll see you next time. Okay, we love you. Okay, thanks. Bye.